Yeah, I, uh, apparently, again, we had some sort of problem. I know we're going to have to get to the bottom of that. Anyway, I was launching into to, uh, uh, Aaron Rodgers and uh, his suggestion that he was taking this homeopathic remedy to protect himself uh, against COVID-19. It has no scientific validity whatsoever. But here we have someone who's, uh, you know, being placed on the pedestal uh, by his fans. And uh, uh, just because he's a famous person doesn't mean that he has some sort of inside knowledge. He doesn't. When it comes to getting advice about a serious topic, uh, such as vaccination, why would he listen to Joe Rogan or to his girlfriend instead of listening to the hundreds of virologists and epidemiologists and, and researchers around the world who have worked on this problem and who have concluded that the best way to develop immunity to this disease is through vaccination. Uh, it, it kind of uh, boggles the mind uh, just uh, how this kind of thing is, is, is going and why people would uh, just not resort to having proper scientific information. Celebrities uh, really have responsibility to make sure that they don't confuse their followers and they don't take advantage of their celebrity status by proliferating what it amounts to scientific nonsense. Okay, sorry for the little disturbance that, that uh, we had, but uh, we're gonna check uh, for traffic and we'll be right back. Anytime. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. You know, if the uh, technical gremlins weren't enough, uh, I also get ostriches texting in their messages. Anytime that we talk about uh, vaccines and their benefits, uh, I get uh, some people, and uh, actually I can recognize them because I see the phone numbers, uh, who are the kind of people who just stick their hand in the sand and are unwilling or perhaps mentally incapable of uh, understanding science. For example, Someone says they don't take the vaccine because it doesn't work. Well, yes, the vaccine works. It is not perfect, but it works. Take a look at the ICUs across North America. They are populated over 90% by people who are unvaccinated. The vaccine works. We wish that it worked better, but it keeps people out of the hospital, which is, of course, the critical thing. It keeps people from dying. Uh, it's hard to know what to do with these uh, ostriches uh, because uh, they just seem to be uneducable, ed uneducatable. Okay, let me talk about uh, Charles Darwin, who, of course, uh, most of you know about, uh, naturalist, you know, father of uh, evolution, really, as he's been called. But do you know that he was prone to seasickness? And that's pretty interesting. Because uh, when he was uh, traveling on the Beagle, which of course was the ship, and of course his most famous uh, voyages were to the Galapagos Islands, but they also traveled along the coast of Chile, where they would make occasional stops because of his seasickness. And it was during one of these stops that Darwin famously encountered a vampire bat. Well, Europeans at the time had already heard about the existence of, of these creatures. 
because uh, the first explorers to America, you know, just after Columbus, uh, had uh, seen supposedly these creatures and had, had uh, told Europeans about them. And uh, in 1790, the zoologist George Shaw had actually coined the term vampire bat. However, before Darwin, there had been no firsthand account of the bat dining on a blood meal. Nobody had really described that in, in detail scientifically. Well, Darwin did. He described the bat's extremely sharp teeth, uh, how it taps into an animal's vein, and how it then uses its tongue to lap up the blood. Uh, of course, there's no sucking involved. It, it actually drinks the blood that trickles out of the, uh, the wound. Anyway, Shaw's use of the term vampire to describe the bat was clearly based on the mythology that had been spreading from Eastern Europe about the dead rising from the grave and nourishing themselves on the blood of the living. That myth had become so entrenched that it prompted an investigation by Antoine Calmet, who was a scholar, a Benedictine monk, actually. And in 1751, he published a work with this title, Treatise on the Apparitions of Spirits and on Vampires or Revenants of Hungary, Moravia, Bohemia, and Silesia, in which he described reports, quote, of men who have been dead for several months, came back to earth, talked, walked, and infested villages. They sucked the blood of their near relations, making them ill, finally causing their death. And what was the only way to stop these hauntings? He said it was by exhuming the bodies, impaling them, cutting off their heads, tearing out the heart, or burning the body. Well, Kalmet was taken by the number of these accounts of vampirism. And while he attempted to refute them with suggestions that the undead were actually victims of malnourishment or of disease, he was not very convincing. Indeed, believe it or not, this myth has still persisted in modern day Transylvania. Nobody has been able to drive a stake through the heart of this, uh, this myth. In any case, the romanticized fictional version of the vampire appeared in 1819 with a book written by William Polidori called The Vampire. And another one, a press called Varney the Vampire. Again, these were Victorian Gothic novels. And in the Varney the Vampire, that was the first time that the bloodthirsty count was depicted as having bat-like wings. But then, of course, along came Bram Stoker and the most famous book of the genre, Dracula, published in 1897. And that, of course, became the prototype for subsequent versions of the count. And it also introduced the storyline of uh, the vampire's immortality and his ability to transform into a bat. The book was very popular, and the various movie versions of Dracula have unfortunately saddled bats, especially vampires, with a negative image. Vampire bats actually make up only a tiny segment of the nearly 1,000 species of bats, and they live only in Latin America, so nobody in Europe or North America ever needs to worry about being bitten by a vampire bat. In any case, they do not make a habit of attacking humans. Although there have been cases where someone sleeping barefoot outdoors on a very dark night 
it has to be very dark, not even a moon moonlight, because the bats only fly during total darkness. It has happened that someone who was barefoot outdoors got nipped on the toe, never on the neck. But it's a very rare occurrence. One problem, however, is that their their prey is mostly domestic animals, such as chickens, cows, horses, and pigs. And that presents a problem for ranchers because uh, the livestock can become infected with rabies from, from the bats. And this has resulted in, in misguided vampire control programs where they used poison bait and they poisoned bananas. Well, that's not gonna do anything for the vampires because they do not eat bananas. All the other species of bats do, and they were uh, affected, obviously, and that had consequences. They were innocent, uh, and this led to ecological consequences because bats eat insects and they serve as pollinators. For example, the agave plant from which uh, tequila is brewed is pollinated by bats. Now there are other interesting stories about bats that you know we can uh, we can learn. Uh, for example, you know they they live in caves. And very often there are thousands and thousands of the bats living in, in caves and they poop a lot. Their poop is called guano. And because it's so rich in nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium, it makes for excellent fertilizer. And furthermore, you can even extract uh, potassium nitrate from it, that's saltpeter. And that can be used to make gunpowder. Uh, of course, you need sulfur and charcoal as well as saltpeter, but saltpeter is a critical component. And during the American Civil War, the protection of bat caves was a, of paramount importance to the Confederate Army. And that's because northern ships had blockaded the southern ports and prevented the importing of gunpowder. And that made bat guano the only source of saltpeter for the Confederates to make uh, gunpowder. Now, these bat feces that build up in, in caves are also flammable. And uh, they also, when they decompose, they yield methane gas. A group of settlers from Kentucky who came to Texas to mine guano from a bat cave back in 1854 found out about this the hard way. Here's the story. Lightning struck near the mouth of the cave and it ignited the methane that had built up inside the cave. There was a huge explosion. Guess the name of the town that these settlers founded. It came to be called Blowout. Well, the only uh, memory of that town today is the post office building that still stands. Uh, others have moved away. But there's the interesting story about the blowout town of Texas. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to check CTV News and we'll be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? When the problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Okay, I had a question about bats being blind. So how do they know it's dark? Yeah, it's a common misconception. Bats are not blind. Bats actually have very good vision. Not only that, they also have sonar. Uh, they send out uh, essentially sound waves and measure the way that they reflect. So they, they are very good at navigating in the dark. The reason that they hunt in the dark 
is because that's when all the insects come out and that's their main prey. And someone else said, ostriches don't actually bury their head in the sand. That of course is true. Uh, the reason that we get the impression that they bury their head in the sand is because they bury their eggs in the sand and the uh, mother ostrich very often checks the eggs buried in the sand and then it looks like she's burying her head in the sand. But obviously we use the expression, uh, bury their head in the sand to describe people who basically are blind to information. I think Michael has a question online. Michael? Uh, hi, Dr. Joe. Um, hi. I, I, uh, well, I have a, a somewhat, I guess it's a, it's a bit of a complicated question, but I'll, I'll try and uh, make this uh, simple. The, there's, there's a material called um, ultra-high molecular weight polyethylene. Um, yes. And I'm wondering if... Uh, if, if that would have the same uh, chemical resistance properties as uh, typical high density polyethylene that, you know, bottles are often made out of for storing chemicals and that sort of thing. Yes, it's, it's, it's just a question of molecular weight, but it also depends on what the specific use is, because different kind of polyethylenes are, are manufactured to specifications designed for specific uses, you know, right. depending on on temperature exposure and, and the thickness that is needed, etc. So it right. depends on what you're contemplating using it for. Okay. Yeah. But um, it's, okay. it's the same but material. I guess, um, a, I guess that's a good start. That's a good start for me. Yeah, polyethylene is polyethylene, but the length of the polyethylene chains of the polymer will have an effect on the very specific properties on, you know, on the density, the hardness, etc. For but sure. chemically, it's the same material. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. That's, All right. That's... Let me once again, uh, the questions that I asked. How many droplets are there on a raspberry on average? And I don't know why nobody has an answer to that. You should be able to discover that. And the other question I had was, what is the only scientifically documented aphrodisiac? The only scientifically documented aphrodisiac, what is it? And, uh, you know, one humorous answer to that question that I've had before is that it's money. No, that's not what we're looking for. You know, I, I was talking before about uh, Darwin. And obviously, Darwin is very famous for the finches that he studied on the Galapagos Islands, which basically, you know, gave him the clues to, to evolution. But there is a very interesting kind of finch that also is native to the Galapagos Islands that apparently Darwin did not come across, but, but uh, biologists since that time have. And believe it or not, that is the vampire finch. And the vampire finch actually drinks the blood of the Nazca booby. The Nazca booby is a bird, it's a seabird. And uh, it uh, turns out that this, uh, the vampire uh, finch uh, normally uh, dines on seeds, on nectar, and on small insects. But when the climate dries out, it has to look for other sources of, of food, and it actually drinks uh, the blood of these seabirds. And it, uh, with its beak, it actually makes a little incision in the, uh, in the body of the Nazca booby, and uh, it you know, it pecks away until there's a little bit of blood and then it drinks uh, the blood. And you can actually see the 
bloody stains on the white feathers of the of the bird. So it's very interesting. And uh, uh, obviously, uh, biologists uh, wanted to study whether or not there's any similarity in the body chemistry of these uh, vampire finches and the vampire bats. And they find that there is a, a similarity. They both have specialized bacteria in their gut that aids the digestion of, of blood. Nature is, is uh, absolutely amazing, absolutely uh, amazing. Okay, um, some other uh, text questions that I have uh, about whether or not there's any new information about uh, side effects of the COVID vaccines depending on one's blood type. Now, I know early on uh, when we were confronting COVID, there were stories about uh, certain blood type people being more affected than others. Uh, I think that that has uh, been uh, way late. I haven't seen anything published about, uh, about that. Uh, so I don't think that there's any connection to uh, COVID and blood type, and certainly not to the side effects of the, uh, of the vac vaccination. Uh, can you please explain, you said that the vaccine keeps one out of the hospital. Uh, now, of course, there are some people who are fully vaccinated who end up in hospital. I mean, it doesn't totally solve the, solve the problem. But when, when you look at the stats across North America, 90% of all patients in ICUs are, uh, are unvaccinated. Now, because there is the possibility of what, what are called breakthrough infections, that is infections in, in, in people uh, who have been vaccinated, obviously we're going to see more and more of those breakthrough infections as more and more people get vaccinated because there is a small percentage of these breakthroughs, but obviously when the number of total people vaccinated uh, increases, even though the percentage may be small, the absolute number starts to creep up. So again, nobody is saying that the vaccine offers total protection. Nothing offers total protection. Uh, life is a very, very risky business, but you want the safety net under you when you're walking that tightrope of, of life. And the vaccine affords that safety net. It's not perfect. Of course, it's not perfect. But <laughs> it is better than anything else that uh, that we have. Uh, so I, I mean, I, you know, I see all the controversies, of course, you know, because I, uh, I keep, you know, up to date on uh, all the the uh, scientific. Uh, websites and of course also on the all the all the anti-vaxxers and and you know when you do that for hours a day and you read the scientific literature i mean you get a pretty good picture of what is going on out there and that's why you know I'm, I'm quite confident of you know saying that no joe rogan is is wrong uh that uh, aaron Rodgers' diatribe doesn't make any any sense uh because I think I, I, you know, I, I have a certain expertise in, in knowing whom to listen to and in knowing which journal articles to look at and uh, try to separate the sense from the, the nonsense. You know, obviously, science does not always provide the answers. You know, uh, uh, life is, is very complicated. And the analogy that I have used so often is that uh, pursuing science is like a race 
It's a race towards a finish line, but you never quite get there. That finish line keeps receding away from you. But as more and more research is carried out, we get closer and closer to that finish line, but never quite get there because the issues are just too complicated. The human body is unbelievably complicated. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of chemicals cruising through our body all the time. Most of them, of course, are natural. They come from the food that we eat, from air that we inhale, the metabolic byproducts of the food food that, that we eat. And then, of course, they're, they're all kinds of things, you know, the, the perfumes that we inhale, uh, the, the stuff that leaches out of uh, the food containers. So we're, our body is constantly confronting all kinds of, of insults. Add to that the viruses, the proteins, the fungi, etc. So no, we do not have a miraculous answer to everything to do with health. All we can do is come up with educated guesses based on the evidence we have accumulated at any given time. And as the evidence changes, we also change our mind. That's the hallmark of science, that it changes according to the evidence that emerges. The hallmark of pseudoscience is that it never changes. The homeopaths are singing the same song that uh, Samuel Hahnemann sang 200 years ago. Let's check traffic. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I think we have Vince on the line. Dr. Joe, up this yak, it's uh, the oyster. No, it's not the oyster. The aphrodisiac is not the oyster. That's a common misconception. Uh, you can eat a lot of oysters. It's not going to have any effect on you. Okay, let's go to Steve. Steve. Hi. Um, I'm seeing in, in public indoor places, stores, malls, everything, uh, a lot of children under 12 not wearing masks. Now, given that... 100% of children under 12 are not vaccinated. Wouldn't it make more sense if they were masked? Yes, look, I mean, you can't go wrong by wearing a mask. You know, those, those stories that somehow it's unhealthy, that's just not true. But it's also very difficult to get kids to, to wear masks and certainly to wear them properly. Uh, don't you don't you think that that uh, given that they're they're all unvaccinated and they're all around each other all day at schools at daycares etc. Uh, wouldn't they be spreading the virus more than anyone else? They are they are and they account for you know a percentage of the cases that we're seeing. But if you follow the Quebec statistics, it's been pretty constant at you know about 500 new infections a day or at least positive tests. And uh, hospitals uh, have not uh, had to increase the, uh, their beds for COVID patients. So we're not doing too badly. And, uh, you know, so that we're not in a catastrophic situation here. Yes, it would be better if we could increase the masking, I think. But, you know, it's also hard to, hard to put any kind of a number on that and how much help that would be. But given the fact that 
kids have been going to school now for months and uh, we have not seen a you know a significant rise in um, in infections among them uh, i don't think that we have a huge problem there okay okay all right we did have a question texted in about the number of droplets on a raspberry well first of all what are droplets droplets are those uh, little fruits because that's exactly what they are on the outside of the raspberry they're actually tiny little raspberries and inside they have seeds you know these these little mountains on the on on the uh, raspberry and the answer that was texted in is uh, about a hundred and from uh, what I've seen, I actually try to count. It's very, very difficult to count, but uh, it's it's uh, between a hundred, hundred twenty-five is is what it is. Uh, and uh, try to count one. You see how difficult it is to count the droplets on a on a raspberry. Uh, raspberries, like other berries, are are uh, great to eat as regularly as you can. As you know, they are full of. Uh, uh, various kind of phytochemicals that are believed to be beneficial. Again, I don't want to overstate the case because, you know, I've said so many times there are no such things as miracle foods and, and you know, um, any kind of superfood that doesn't exist. But I think uh, the more berries we eat, uh, the better. Uh, at least in the laboratory, they can be shown to... to uh, uh, reduce the number of free radicals that are formed in a certain chemical reaction. So, so there is a reason to uh, eat berries. Obviously, it's not a cheap thing to eat. Uh, frozen berries are as good. Uh, you know, this is a question that comes uh, up often, uh, not only about berries, but about frozen foods in general. And actually, I wrote a Gazette column on this, and it's in yesterday's Gazette, the story of uh, frozen foods, which is a very interesting story. And uh, it goes back to Clarence Birdseye, uh, an American who um, in the early part of the 20th century was working in Labrador on some sort of project for the Department of uh, Agriculture. And he was privy to the dining habits of the, of the natives, the, the Inuit. And he was quite taken by the fact that uh, they went fishing. And of course they do that by cutting a hole in the ice. And the weather was so cold uh, very often down to about minus 40 degrees. And of course, at minus 40, you don't have to say Celsius or Fahrenheit because they coincide at that point. Uh, he noticed that when the weather was very good, they pulled out the, the fish from the water and the fish froze almost instantly. And then later on, when those fish were uh, uh, eaten, they tasted to him as if they were fresh. Now at that time, frozen foods were already available, you know, in, in the market. But the problem was that when you thawed them out, uh, their texture was revolting and the taste was not very good. So this was a very novel observation that the fish tasted good and the texture was fine. It wasn't mushy at all. So when he went back to the US, he actually developed a machine that would freeze the food very quickly because he figured that that was the key here. That was the difference between the frozen foods that were available in the marketplace and the uh, the one that he had tasted in, in Labrador. And uh, as it turns out, he was correct because when you freeze food slowly, the moisture content of the fruit, 
of the food, which of course becomes ice. Uh, the, the ice crystals get to be very large when the water freezes slowly. When you freeze it very quickly, the crystals are very small. And it's the large crystals that burst the cells. And that's what changes the texture of the food. So he developed these uh, machines, very large machines, where there were metal plates that were uh, cooled with a, a, a very, very cold saline solution. And as the food passed between them, it was very quickly frozen. He also developed uh, technologies by which the frozen food could be transported, the, the kind of containers. He made a lot of money. And he eventually sold out to the Postum uh, company, uh, which was, you know, a cereal company, but they got into the frozen food business. He sold out at that time for $22 million. And that, uh, you know, in modern day, that would be a huge amount of, of, of money. And uh, this uh, started the whole frozen food business. And it, it did very well because it tasted good and um, it didn't have to have uh, preservatives. And uh, it had a much lower salt content than canned foods. It turned out that uh, a big boost was given to frozen foods during the Second World War because metals were in short supply. And uh, most of the metal, the tin cans, the metal cans went to the, you know, the war effort. And uh, frozen foods could be sold in, in uh, containers that were not made of metal. So they had a big boost in sales. And that boost has been maintained since that time. Anyway, the reason that I got into this whole discussion is because of the, the, the question of whether or not these frozen foods, like the frozen berries, are any less nutritious than the freshly picked ones. And the answer is no. Uh, indeed, sometimes they are more nutritious because they are frozen very, very quickly after they are picked before they have lost any of their nutritional value. And the very rapid freezing uh, inactivates the enzymes that normally would lead to the destruction of the of the texture. Uh, so there's you know no reason to shy away from uh, frozen berries if you are worried about the costs that are involved. Uh, obviously, fresh berries are uh, tastier, uh, I think, but uh, frozen berries. I have frozen berries that uh, taste excellent. Anyway. That is it. We have once again run out of time, but uh, fret not. We will be back with you same time, same stations next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.